Enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. birth of stars is one of the coolest sounding phrases out there. I get a kind of opera soundtrack in my mind when I picture clouds of dust beginning to coalesce, gravitational attraction dragging gases and elements together and then warming them, slowly and then quickly. Our own star, the sun, is actually kind of an anomaly because it's at this point in the star's history when the protostar growing here usually becomes two or three or more stars. Most of the stars in our galaxy are paired up or grouped in some way. There isn't really one type of star, either. For as long as humans have been looking at stars, there have been descriptions of the star Sirius, which is Greek for glowing because it's so damn bright, as bluish, while the star Betelgeuse in the constellation Orion has been described as red in order to locate it. I want to dig into star compositions at some point, because spectroscopy is calling my name, but first I want to talk about the ways we currently classify stars, the process of how we reached our current classification system starting in the late 1800s, and what certain stars have done for our understanding of the universe. This first episode in this, I suppose, two-part series about stars and star classifications is going to be about variable stars specifically and it's going to get feminist. So as you may have noticed, I don't mention a lot of women when I'm talking about astronomy's history. It's not because women didn't exist before the 19th century, far from it. It's just that so few of them had the delicate balance of a supportive family, the time, and the educational background to engage in science. Women's suffrage came to the forefront of American politics throughout the 1800s, and women's colleges, while they had been around in some form or another since the mid-1700s, began to turn out graduates who wanted to engage with the scientific community. Harvard Observatory became the first place to employ women as computers, under the directorship of Edward Charles Pickering, who took over the observatory in 1876, and uh, he made it his project to catalog the brightness and spectral composition of every star in the sky that Harvard Observatory could take a photograph of. I talked in the third podcast, the one about the Hubble telescope, about how people developed the technology to take photographs of space. It was a long, painful process until the dry plate collodion technique was applied, and once it was, the astronomer Henry Draper and his heiress wife Anna Palmer Draper started taking photos of the sky on glass plates. The plates were negatives, so the stars showed up black against the clear background. The brighter the star was, the larger a spot it would leave on the plate. The Drapers went one star at a time, though, and they also attached a special prism to the eyepiece of their telescope so they could also capture the spectral lines of the star. I really, really want to get into spectroscopy at some point, but I'll just say here that when you refract the light of a star through a prism, a bunch of bright lines and dark patches appear where you'd normally see a rainbow. 
I've always seen a rainbow in the mornings when the sun shines through the peephole in our house's front door. It's a big stripe running red to violet. When you shine a star's light through a prism, though, there might be dark patches and then stripes of color. That's a star's spectrum. And if you map it out, you can tell what elements are in the star, because elements give off a very certain wavelength of light. Don't worry too much about it yet. I'll get into it soon, I promise. It's a painstaking process. We can leave it at that for this podcast. When Henry Draper died suddenly in 1882, Anna Draper decided to donate the photographic plates they'd taken and the telescope and photographic apparatus they'd been using to Harvard University. Pickering was super excited. He currently had eight women computers working for him, assigned to different projects. Selena Bond was fixing the exact positions of several thousand stars in Harvard's zone of the sky as part of a worldwide stellar mapping project. Anna Winlock was working to support her family after the death of her father, who had been Harvard Observatory's third director. Uh, Wilhelmina Fleming, also known as Mina, had been Pickering's housekeeper until he hired her on as a computer and copyist. The eight women that he had working for him were basically working for minimum wage. They worked seven hours a day, six days a week, for 25 cents an hour, which was 10 cents more than cotton mill workers made. In Pickering's defense of these practices, the only reason they could afford eight computers at all was because he was selling grass clippings for $30 a year, which covered 120 hours of their time. Harvard Observatory was on a major budget. Anna Draper's donations, though, which were made to help further her and her husband's research because she really didn't want to do it without him, helped out a lot. Harvard Observatory could photograph the night sky now, and donations from Mrs. Draper and another patron of astronomy, Catherine Wolfe Bruce, helped out with Pickering's goal of taking photographs of the sky, both from Harvard in Massachusetts and from a newly established sister observatory in Peru. Now, this is going to come up later, but not all of the sky is visible from one point on Earth. The northern hemisphere has Polaris to help show where north is, but the southern hemisphere does not have that star. Polaris disappears behind the horizon somewhere around the latitude of Brazil. Instead, the southern hemisphere has the Magellanic Clouds, which are named because of the astronomer Magellan. He used them to navigate around the world. He described a larger and a smaller cloud that helped him orient himself and his ships. So, Harvard Observatory had photographic plates taken from their northern hemisphere campus and also from the southern hemisphere. Pickering had also developed a technique with larger dry collodion plates so they could take photographs of more than just one star at a time, which was a big relief. (laughs) He had to start hiring more computers to examine all of these new plates, though, and that's where Henrietta Swan Leavitt came in. I read a really interesting sort of biography of her called Miss Leavitt's Stars by George Johnson, and it was chock full of primary source analysis on Leavitt, what little there is. She had a big family, though a few of her siblings died young, including a brother named Roswell, which I should do an episode on aliens someday. (laughs) Hmm. Um, Anyway, she was firmly upper middle class, studied at Oberlin and Radcliffe College. Radcliffe was the uh, women's college associated with Harvard University. And then she graduated in 1891 with a certificate, which, if she had been a man, would have been a BA from Harvard. She didn't have a diary, so all we have to go on is her extensive notes and published materials, which are very boring while also being, you know, pivotal to the progression of astronomy, Um, a few letters, and a few things that people said about her. She studied music for a little while at Oberlin, but went deaf later in life. 
She started volunteering at Harvard Observatory when she was 25 in 1893 with the goal to learn astronomy. Pickering assigned her to a job called stellar photometry, which was recording the magnitude of stars or categorizing their brightness. She would compare the size of the star spots on the plates of what was now called the Henry Draper catalog to a small palette that was like a little fly swatter, which was apparently called a fly spanker. How kinky. She was also asked to look for variable stars. The existence of variable stars was a well-known phenomenon at this point in history, though the reason behind them was still unclear. These were stars that seemed to pulse, dimming and brightening over a period of time that could range from every few days to weeks or months. The hypothesis in the late 1800s was either that two stars were orbiting each other and would eclipse each other's light at regular intervals, which uh, these are now called eclipsing binary stars, or that variable stars were flaring and dimming, as it had been observed by looking at their color changes that their temperatures rose and fell with their brightness. Pickering had enlisted volunteers from the amateur astronomy community back in 1882 to help track and identify variable stars, and he got a fair amount of help from women like Eliza Crane and Mary Stockwell, who were attending Vassar, and from Sarah Wentworth of Danvers, Massachusetts. Now he assigned Levitt to the task of identifying variable stars as she mapped out the magnitude of stars. The way to identify variable stars was to notice their magnitude changing over time. Plates were still rolling in from Peru, and the way to detect the change was to line up two plate exposures taken at different times of the year, one of them uh, the negative with black stars on a clear background, and one a positive copy with clear stars on a black background. They should cancel each other out, unless there were variable stars. Levitt was hired to do this work full-time in 1902 for 30 cents an hour. Her hearing was starting to go at this point, and she was beginning to experience some of the trials that would plague her throughout her life, family emergencies and personal illness. I won't talk about all the interruptions her work suffered. Johnson goes into it, uh, fairly detailed um, descriptions in his book. It did highlight something that I think is overlooked a lot, though. It reminded me of a quote from Claire Massoud, and I'll put the full thing in the show notes on the website at all one word, fill the void-with-space.tumblr.com. But the last line of her quote really sums it up. Quote, it was supposed to say great artist on my tombstone, but if I died right now, it would say such a good teacher slash daughter slash friend instead. And what I really want to shout and want in big letters on that grave too is fuck you all. Women were and are assumed to have a duty to family. They have to take care of people. It's called emotional labor. And once I realized what it was, I started seeing it everywhere. I don't think caring about people is bad. (laughs) Far from it. I think caring for others is a piece of what makes life worth living. I do object, though, when the assumed and expected act of caring is what gets in the way of living your best life. And when it's something as out of your hands as chronic illness or chronic pain, the fact that you're expected to work through those times is horrible. I get frustrated and disappointed when I remember all of the people trapped in situations where they have to take breaks for health or family and their employer or patron or whoever gets mad about it. Pickering was pretty understanding about Levitt's absences over the years, and she did make the best of a really rough situation, but 
I want to give her mad props for getting so much research and analysis and observation done in spite of how hard the world made it for her. It's frankly incredible. For 30 cents an hour, for almost three decades, with years of absence from her work and her passion for reasons outside of her control, she got shit done. What Levitt started to notice in 1904, as she started comparing the plates taken of the small Magellanic cloud, was that variable stars were not as rare as the scientific community seemed to think they were. She found hundreds in both the small and large Magellanic clouds, and in 1908, she published a 21-page article called The 1,777 Variables in the Magellanic Clouds. The last page of the article had a list of 16 stars in a table that had their magnitudes and their periods listed. And the cautious hypothesis, quote, it is worthy of notice that the brighter variables have the longer periods. Now, stars aren't all the same distance from Earth. Even stars that have the same apparent magnitude might be light years apart, but they look like they're the same brightness from Earth. What's handy about the Magellanic Clouds, though is that because all of the stars being observed were in these nebula clusters of dust and gas and stars, it was known that they were all the same distance from Earth. If Levitt's correlation was true, astronomers would be able to judge a star's actual brightness based on its period, then compare that with its apparent brightness and estimate distance. Um, does that make sense? Levitt was presenting, in very gentle terms, that stars ha- that had the same brightness also pulse at the same tempo. These kinds of stars ended up being named Cephids, by the way, after the first variable star with this property that was discovered in 1784 in the constellation Cephas by John Goodrick, who was coincidentally also deaf. In Levitt's luminosity law, if you saw a star that was way dimmer than another star, but it also took the same amount of time for it to dim and brighten, you would know that it was the same kind of star. It should therefore have the same brightness as the other one, which means that the dim star is further away. You could then do some comparison of their apparent brightness and work out how far apart the two of them were, though only in rough terms. A star that is four times brighter than another star of the same kind would be twice as close to us as the other star. This kind of correlation is called an inverse square law. You can't get any concrete numbers out of it unless you know the distance to one of those stars, though. So that was the next step in astronomy. Levitt had identified a kind of star that had a recognizable brightness and could serve as a standard candle, meaning you'd know how bright it was supposed to be. Now, scientists had to figure out how to use it to measure distances in space. In my second podcast about cosmology, I talked a bit about the big arguments in science during the turn of the 20th century. One argument was about whether the nebulae that people were observing were just gas clumps, or if they were other galaxies like our Milky Way galaxy. By the way, uh, the word galaxy comes from the Greek word meaning milky. Fun fact there, and a good example of how the people who named our galaxy decided that ours was the only thing out there. Another argument that astronomers were having was about how big the Milky Way was. The distance from the Earth to the Moon had been measured already, way back in the 2nd century BCE by Hipparchus. The method he used was also one used a couple millennia later to determine the distance of our planets and the sun. It's a technique involving parallax and triangulation. Parallax is the amount of apparent movement of a distant object when an observer's position changes. The classic test is to hold your finger out at arm's length, close one eye, 
and then switch which eye is closed. Your finger doesn't actually move, but it looks like it's moving, because you're switching which eye you're looking out of. Scientists had a technique to measure how far a distant object was, in this case your finger, based on the amount it appears to move when you look at it from two different positions. For measuring the distance to the moon, it could be two different positions on Earth. For measuring the distance to the nearest star, which is Alpha Centauri, they used the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. Astronomers looked at Alpha Centauri's position, and then looked at its position again six months later, when the Earth was on the other side of the Sun. The amount of parallax that they measured could only be determined in arc seconds, which are fractions of a degree. That's how small the change was, even working with the parallax that resulted from the Earth being on the other side of the Sun itself. Astronomers determined that Alpha Centauri is 25 trillion miles away, or over four light years. I said in the beginning of the first podcast that we'd be dealing with some pretty impossibly big numbers, and light years are one of them. It's the distance light can travel in a year, and light moves at 186,282 miles per second, or 6 trillion miles in a year. So when I say Alpha Centauri is over 4 light years away, oof. And that's our closest neighbor. Measuring out to Cephids was going to be even harder, though. The nearest one of those is actually Polaris, the North Star, but it was just too far for scientists to observe any parallax over a year. They needed to find a way, though, otherwise they couldn't use Cephid variables as a yardstick to measure out how big the Milky Way was, or how distant the stars were, or where the edge of the observable universe was. They wanted to see if the nebulae were as big as our Milky Way, if they might be whole island universes just like ours. In the 1700s, William Herschel had observed that the stars that make up the constellation Hercules appeared, over periods of decades, to be fanning out, while the stars in the constellation Columba were converging. He had concluded that the Sun and our solar system are leaving Columba and heading towards Hercules. Now, in the time of trying to triangulate Cephids, it might be possible to note the position of a Cephid variable and then measure its parallax years later, when the Sun itself had traveled through space. The Danish astronomer Enyar Hertzsprung, boy, I hope I said that right. The Danish astronomer Enyar Hertzsprung used this technique to calculate the distance to some cephids in the Milky Way, and he extrapolated the size of our galaxy as 30,000 light years in diameter, though it was misprinted at the time as 3,000 light years, which is a huge difference. <laughs> Separately, an American astronomer named Henry Norris Russell used a different method to calculate our galaxy at 80,000 light years across. It's actually 100,000. They were both went too small, but it was an attempt. Hertzsprung and Russell later collaborated on a scatter plot called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram that mapped each star on a graph to compare its brightness with its temperature, which is determined by a star's color. I want to talk about star color at some point, because it's a major part of how we classify stars today. Their diagram was also one of the early steps to understanding how stars evolve over time. Harlow Shapley, who you might recall from my second podcast on cosmology, decided to take his own stab at calibrating Levitt's Seaford yardstick. He'd worked on eclipsing binary stars at Princeton for his dissertation, and had noticed that there were globular clusters of stars in the Milky Way that had variables in them that blinked faster than Cephids, their periods measured in hours rather than days. He called them cluster variables, but they're called RR Lyrae variables today. Shapley used the current understanding of redshifts and blue shifts to find these globular clusters' radial velocity, or 
the speed at which these stars were moving away from or towards Earth. He measured the Milky Way at 300,000 light years across, which we know is three times too big, so bad job there. But he did also find globular clusters in the Milky Way were congregating in the region that is the constellation Sagittarius, which suggested Sagittarius was the center of the Milky Way, and our solar system was in an outer arm. It's kind of a funny progression from geocentrism to heliocentrism, and then from believing our solar system is the center of the universe to being proven wrong once more. <laughs> George Johnson, the author of Miss Levitt Stars, puts it really well. Quote, If a theory or observation seemed to suggest that we, the observers, happen to occupy an exalted place in the heavens, then it was probably wrong. In 1917, Levitt published 184 pages of her work on 96 specific stars whose magnitude she had determined so carefully that they could be used as standard for the rest of the sky. That kind of achievement was more incredible and painstaking than some work that had earned other astronomers a Ph.D., She died in 1921, in December. Her desk at Harvard Observatory was given to Cecilia Payne, a British student who did her dissertation on the chemical composition of stars, earning her Harvard's first doctorate in astronomy. She later became a professor and the chair of the astronomy department. Payne also studied variable stars after earning her PhD. There was a lot more left to examine. You know him, you love him. It turns out he affected a really bad British accent for most of his adult life. Edwin Hubble was here again. He published his paper on redshift distance relations in 1929 using data gathered by his assistant Milton Humison, who actually had a really interesting career path to becoming an assistant astronomer. I won't go into that right now, but Hubble was an observational astronomer above all else, not a theoretician. After publishing that paper, he went back to observations and noticed that our galaxy appeared to be bigger than all the others. Measuring other galaxies involved measuring their apparent size and adjusting for distance to find the true diameter, but when he did that, the galaxy Andromeda turned out to be one-tenth the size of the Milky Way. Astronomers measured galaxies at the outer rim of the universe and found that they were two billion light-years away. It was reasonable to assume that it took them two billion years to make it out that far, but... Earth was four billion years old. That didn't make any sense. It implied Earth was older than the universe. Robert Trumpler, a Swiss astronomer working at Lick Observatory in California, was studying star clusters and found that the further they were from Earth, the larger they appeared to be. He concluded that dust in the Milky Way was dimming stars, making them appear more distant. Correcting for this distortion made galaxy size estimates much, much more reasonable, and further corrections to find the true brightness of Cephids showed that everything was further away than it had looked. World War I was, and I don't feel good saying this, an awesome time for astronomical observations in Los Angeles. There were periodic blackouts in the city to prevent bombings, so the German astronomer Walter Bade, working at the Mount Wilson Observatory, was able to see stars and variations in star color that were normally invisible with the light pollution. He saw that stars in a galaxy's center were a different color than Levitt's cephids in the outer reaches of space. The realization that there were two different kinds of variable stars, one dimmer than the other, helped refine the measurements of the universe. The universe actually doubled in size with these new results. 
Measurements had to change from light years to parsecs, which are a unit of measurement I think every nerd has heard of, but maybe not all nerds know what it actually is. I certainly didn't. A parsec is the distance to a star that shifts by one arc second from one side of Earth's orbit to the other. That really just means one parsec is about 19 trillion miles, or a bit over three light years. For all the technological and observational progress that we've made, the process for measuring objects in deep space remains the same. Use redshift to determine the recessional velocity of a galaxy or a star cluster, then divide it by the Hubble constant to get distance. CFIDs are still used to calibrate the Hubble scale, but they're still too distant for even orbiting satellites to accurately measure. There are a ton of other sorts of complications, too. Galactic clusters pull at each other, warping distances. Our local group is falling into the Virgo cluster, a process called Virgocentric flow. And this podcast would be extra amusing for me to record if I was menstruating right now, because the amount I have said period and now Virgocentric flow is absolutely hilarious. And then there's a complication called the Malmquist bias, which is the fact that the stars that are visible in a cluster are the brightest ones. So astronomers are relying on them to compute average luminosity, but because they're the brightest stars, it's inevitably skewing the results. I'm going to wrap up talking about variable stars for this podcast, though I would like to talk about our star classification system in the next one. CFIDs are one type of variable star, as are cluster variables, which we now call RR Lyrae. CFIDs have a period between 1 and 70 days, and their brightness can vary between 0.1 and 2 magnitudes. RR Lyrae variables have a period between 0.05 and 1.2 days, and they are older and smaller than CFIDs. Eclipsing binaries are another kind of variable, but they can't be used as standard candles. Again, our sun is an anomaly because it's singular. Most stars come in pairs or threes, and their rotation eclipses each other. RV Tauri variables blink much more slowly than CFIDs and RR Lyrae. They have periods between 30 and 150 days, and sometimes their periods have variations that can be hundreds or thousands of days long. Long period variables are even slower, with periods that range from 30 to 1,000 days. These stars are either red giants or supergiants, and they have subclasses as well. Mira stars are actually what our own sun is going to become, and uh, semi-regular stars have some regular periods and some irregular light variations. And finally, there are irregular variables, which don't have a measurable period to their brightness fluctuations. These are usually red giants, too. There are other kinds of variable stars, but these are categorized as cataclysmic variables. Supernovae are stars that explode massively, increasing their magnitude by 20 or more. Novae are a type of binary system that brightens and then slowly fades. Dwarf novae are similar to novae, but they don't brighten as much as a nova would. Symbiotic stars are a binary system that have nova-like outbursts up to three magnitudes. R. Coronae Borealis is a type of eruptive variable that spends much of its time at maximum light. All of these kinds of variable stars are pretty irregular, though. CFIDs, RR Lyrae, RV Tauri, and long-period variables are the most common kind that astronomers will use as standard candles. There's still so much to learn, though. Edwin Hubble got poetic about it, and I'll end on this quote from him. Quote, 
With increasing distance, our knowledge fades, and fades rapidly. Eventually, we reach the dim boundary, the utmost limits of our telescopes. There, we measure shadows and search among ghostly errors of measurement for landmarks that are scarcely more substantial. So today, we talked about variable stars. So much about variable stars. We started with Harvard Observatory and Edward Pickering's tenure as the director, his project of analyzing the plates in the Henry Draper catalog using female computers, and how Henrietta Leavitt contributed, as did the other female computers. Leavitt noticed variable stars in the Magellanic Clouds and came up with her luminosity law, where the periods of Cephids are proportional to their luminosity. The brighter they are, the greater their period is. This law helped estimate interstellar and intergalactic distances. It took some time and some humility, but CFIDs and other variable stars have helped astronomers map out the size of our galaxy, the spaces between celestial objects, and the distance to the outer reaches of our universe. Distances are measured in parsecs nowadays, not light years. It's a big, big, beautiful verse out there. From here, I'm pretty sure that I'm going to be talking about the star classification system that we use that Annie Jump Cannon started. I'm always down to talk about planets, too, or dark matter, and of course, spectroscopy. I got a request for supernovae from my dear friend Elena, and that would definitely be covered in star classifications, because supernovae are part of a star's life cycle. You can tell me what you think I should research by sending me an ask on the Tumblr. You can also tweet at me at HD in the Void. I'll respond to that as well. And all the episodes I've done, and all the episodes I'll continue to do, all of those are up on iTunes now. You can search for HD in the Void, and it would be super great if you could subscribe there, rate it, maybe write a review if the spirit moves you, all of that good stuff. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it sifts my sugar. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to sift your sugar too. Tune in on June 19th for whatever I end up researching next. As per usual, I have sources, music credits, the script for this episode, and a vocab list, which this time is extensive because I covered some potentially bewildering topics and used a fair amount of jargon. All that's available at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off. <laughs>